you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I had intended to take us uh, through the rest of the chapter this morning, but uh, we're, we're really going to just look at three verses uh, and stop there. Can I get an amen? Thank you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 17. I'm just going to look at this one verse, and uh, there's a lot there. A lot of really important stuff there, and, uh, and so I want to spend some time looking at what is in the Apostle Paul's heart as he is writing to uh, the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Paul had a concern with regard to the Corinthian church, as I'm sure he did with a lot of other churches as time went on, uh, as the church matured. Uh, there's a tendency a lot of times as things become more organized, uh, they also become more institutionalized. Uh, and it's not so hard for us to believe that uh, what begins as kind of a fledgling and grassroots movement where a lot of people are excited, um, kind of ready to do anything imaginable for the cause that they have pledged their allegiance to, over the period of time, there's a tendency for, um, for organizational structures to become more cumbersome. Uh, we, last week, we talked about the problem of division that was beginning to occur in the church at Corinth, right? And division oftentimes is associated, can be associated, not just with looming failure that's on the horizon, but a lot of times with even success, but that will ultimately result in failure if that division is allowed to continue to go on. So Paul has a concern here, and his concern, we see it at the end of this verse that we just read, and that is that the cross of Christ would be emptied of its effect. That's his concern. That somehow, what we're doing, who we are, the reason for our being, the reason why we assemble, the reason why we are anything at all, will ultimately be reduced to something that is meaningless and pointless. That's his fear, that the cross of Christ would be emptied of its effect. To be emptied means to empty something of its contents, right? You can imagine uh, if you had a vessel, uh, that vessel has a point when it is full of something, right? Uh, to empty it of its contents, uh, to take something that has a great matter of importance to it and reduce it to something that is unimportant and pointless is what Paul's talking about here. Let me ask you something. Does the cross have any real active bearing on your life right now? If we're, if we're going to talk about the point of the cross, then each of us, we need to reflect on and ask ourselves, well, what is the point of the cross? Does the, does the cross actually have any really 
any real bearing or significance on my life. In other words, Jesus was crucified on a cross. Does that mean anything to you personally? In other words, why did Jesus have to die on a cross? What was the point of that? And what could it possibly mean for me thousands of years later? The church in Corinth, thousands of years ago, far closer to the event of the cross, was already in danger of losing the point. They were, first of all, and we, again, we talked about this last week, they were developing any one of several attachments to a particular personality. For example, Paul, right? He uses himself as an example that some had aligned themselves, associated with themselves, considered their allegiance to be more toward Paul than to what object their allegiance actually should have belonged. Some hitched their wagon to another guy by the name of Apollos, some to the Apostle Peter, some who, uh, in their arrogance, said, I don't pledge my allegiance to any person at all. My allegiance is to Christ alone. And so these divisions, these factions were being created because the emphasis was on a particular person instead of the cross, and it was dividing the whole body of the church. You can imagine, for us, if we had these factions, these segments of what is supposed to be a whole body comprised of every single one of us together working jointly alongside with, arm in arm, moving in the same direction. You can imagine if we were instead divided into our individual factions, right? And that was kind of the point of last week, this, this rise of uh, this sense of individualism that has crept into the church that sees the self as more important than the whole, right? And when we adopt that idea of ourselves, we become more like consumers. We can become more like customers who are waiting for something like this organization to provide some kind of benefit, as opposed to seeing ourselves as that very thing itself, right? That we are the body. Consider, when you think about the church, even beyond Curtis Lake Church to the church universal, imagine how many people are following some person. It's a major problem. It's a major problem in our world today. There's so many are looking at and are following a person. Uh, especially consider those who have the biggest platforms, the largest audiences, the ones that are writing the books, that are sought after for uh, speaking at the various conventions. Uh, some of you are in a world where you go to a, a place uh, for professional development, right? So you're invited to this convention, and, and you look to see, like, who's going to be there, right? And 
depending on how important the cast of characters that are there, uh, it, it determines whether or not you're willing to buy a ticket and get on an airplane and go. People are prone to following personalities. Often that person is the most important thing about that church. For some, the, their whole experience of being a Christian may be more about their attraction to some particular person. And the problem is that, is that the, in that context, the power of the cross is overshadowed by the personality of the one who may be talking about it or, more often, not talking about it. Here's the problem. If there's a, a preacher, a teacher, speaker, one that would uh, long for an audience and a platform, if that person is seeking their own honor, the cross is necessarily being pushed away. So Paul's concerned that the church, the various individuals of the church, in following a person and putting their focus on somebody that they have elevated, somebody that they have platformed, that that is going to actually nullify what is supposed to be the effect of the power of God through the cross. The second thing Paul sees here is that, um, that the cross and the gospel message might be tainted. Um, tainted how? Well, tainted by a certain kind of eloquence and worldly wisdom. Right? Paul's concerned that the plain message of the cross and the power that comes with that might get tainted along the way by eloquence or worldly wisdom. Would you believe that whole masses of people could be convinced to believe a lie? Or to believe um, a half-truth through a skillful use of words? That masses of people could be convinced to, to do something or accept something or to believe something that isn't even good for them? Would you believe that? It, we have a word for it, right? It's called propaganda. And you and I are confronted with it every single day. Ben Witherington, theologian, writes that the wisdom Paul has in mind that he stands opposed to, right, because of the way in which it might taint the message of the cross, he says, it is the kind of wisdom that is adept at winning arguments and impressing an audience by rhetorical display rather than by content. How many of you know that there are, there, are, there are those who have an uncanny ability to assemble words in a very skillful and masterful way so as to change the whole minds of whole crowds of people? Right? Oratory, rhetoric, is a 
a science, a, a, a designed use of words to compel the listeners to a particular conclusion. A conclusion that may or may not even be right. Because oftentimes, the skill of rhetoric is less concerned about the actual content, that is, the reality of the content that is being suggested, and it's more about just getting people to come to the same conclusion that the speaker desires. Is this not what um, two lawyers in a courtroom do? especially in both their opening and their closing arguments. What are they trying to do? They're trying to persuade a crowd, right? A jury, perhaps, or a judge of some particular conclusion. And the degree to which they are actually skilled at leveraging those words can make the difference between a guilty or not guilty verdict. Think about our modern a political system where it seems to me that governing has become less about doing actual good for people and has become more about a numbers game, right? That is that uh, approval numbers and popularity, uh, clever words and sound bites, television, radio, and internet advertisements and propaganda, whatever it takes to get a few more people to vote for you instead of the other person. Because that's the difference between winning and losing an election. The actual value of the message, the content behind what is being spoken, doesn't, it's, it's actually less important. You could, have, you could have a person who has a real plan, <laughs> has a real sincere desire to see what needs to be changed actually changed. And, and they could offer a plan for it if, if they don't have the ability to convince the crowd. But the other person whose content is basically vain, empty, there's really nothing substantial to it, but they happen to be using the right combination of words and sound bites and narratives and all all of the rhetorical devices that can convince a crowd, well, there's a really good chance that that person's going to win. It doesn't mean that there isn't a place for sound rhetoric Or that there isn't a need for us as Christians to be able to grow in our ability to have sophisticated conversations about any number of things, right? We live in a very complex world where there's a lot of nuance, um, where uh, uh, this whole thing is about the mess of what church life is, the mess of what our individual lives are. And a lot of times we're dealing not just with ideologies up here, you know, on a, on a, on a high level, you know, what we're often doing is we're, we're interacting with one another person to person, human being to human being, face to face, right? And so, like, we have to have, we have to possess and we have to grow in our ability to actually have very sophisticated conversations. So this isn't to say that, um, 
that everything has a simple, short answer. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that, you know, as we engage in and grow in our understanding of the gospel and the priorities of God for our lives and this world that we live in, that we don't need solid and continual growth, right? In fact, that's the very picture of what the Christian life is. It is a life not of stagnation, but a life of growth, of movement. This doesn't mean that um, while we need to have sophisticated conversations, that we should be okay with framing the gospel in such a way that it is um, a palatable and clever putting together of words which abandons the transforming power of the cross. And here's why. It's because the cross doesn't need to manipulate. Um, Somebody who wants to win an election may need to manipulate how we think, what we believe, may need to get us to change our minds about something. And and, um, perhaps that can be done through real, honest dialogue, but oftentimes I think it's done through manipulation. Well, the cross doesn't need to manipulate. And here's the reality. If, if, If your experience is one where you've been kind of tricked into following Jesus, right, where it's more about um, some other thing, maybe uh, uh, some magnanimous personality, right, that, 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 that just sort of coaxed you into the life of Christianity, um, there's a really good chance you haven't experienced the dynamic power of the cross, right? So this is Paul's concern. I don't want to lose, I don't want to negate, I don't want to nullify the power of the cross. So what is wrong with eloquent wisdom, right? Paul seems to disparage whatever this eloquent wisdom is that he sets up as being antithetical to the power of the cross. So what is it? Well, this eloquent wisdom, I think, is it's a wisdom that stands in contrast to the cross because it's characterized by pride. Right? It's a wisdom that comes with an attitude. Some of you have this attitude sometimes. I have this attitude sometimes. It's an attitude that I know better. Right? Some of you right here, right now, you have an attitude of I know better. Right? And that that I know better attitude is fueled by pride. Um, It sources itself from my selfish desires. It then seeks affirmation and rejects those who deny affirmation. It closes itself off to the voice of God's spirit And it will settle for status quo instead of doing the hard work of change. That's what's wrong with the eloquent wisdom that stands to nullify the power of the cross. The cross is diminished in its power to the extent that you and I are elevated in our pride. And the dangerous part is that um, what we 
what we think, what we perceive, what we believe, what we uh, embrace, it can feel as natural to us as water feels to a fish. You ever heard the expression that a fish has no idea that it's wet? Right? A fish doesn't know that it's wet. Because the only environment that it knows is one of submersion in water. And you and I, like we live in a world where we can be um, unknowingly participating in or in agreement with worldly wisdom that stands contrary to the wisdom of God and not even know it. Right? Like, that's the dangerous part. It is likely we accept most of the world as it is presented to us because it's the world that we have come to know. Uh, you know, we have the benefit today of being able to look back in history and learn a very, very hard lesson about something like the institution of slavery, which I would presume every person in this room sees as an incredibly heinous and wicked form of unrighteousness between one human and another. But you could imagine that if somebody were born into that world where... Uh, not only was racism and slavery that follows it the way of life, but as far as that person is concerned, it's always been that way of life, and it will always be that way of life. You could understand why somebody might until they were jarred away from the fallacy of that way of seeing the world. You could see why they so much more easily embrace, again, something that you and I would be wildly offended by and opposed to, that you and I would likely lay our lives down in order to eradicate. I think this is why the boundaries for the sexual mores which were being pushed in the mid and later 1900s, um, had at some point people gasping in reaction to uh, the explicit sexuality that was starting to become more in the public view. Uh, we'd laugh at it today, but there was a time where um, when Marilyn Monroe, for instance, would do or convey herself in a sexually explicit way that more people than not would gasp at such a thing. I grew up on sitcoms like Three's Company, reruns, just to be clear, not that old. Not that that's a problem, but. Um, and the, I, I remember as a child, like the, the innuendo cast by uh, and 
joked about through uh, such a presentation, again, was like it was, it was pushing the boundaries. It was, it was, for many people, offensive. But now, I mean, just think about our world today, the way we have been reconditioned toward um, immorality, toward sexual mores. We fail to bat an eye at gross immodesty. The presence of casual sex and limitless sexual partners, whether it's something that is glamorized in television and movies and the internet, or whether it's something that we ourselves individually engage in, uh, the availability of sexually explicit material at our fingertips and at the fingertips of our children. Like we barely even think about it, right? Because it's like a fish in water. It's the world in which we live. And so when we start to challenge the notions of social convention or popular opinion or what, has, what, what seems to have been always accepted, it can be jarring to think that there might be there might be something that stands in contrast to what we have always thought or believed. See, the wisdom of this world cannot be trusted, right? And so Paul, part of Paul's problem with this wisdom that stands in contrast to the power of the cross is that it can't be trusted. Why? Well, for one thing, it's incomplete, right? The wisdom of this world is incomplete. Just look at how the world, people in the world, continue to look for and long for answers. Answers to things that those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus have already plainly discovered. They're looking, they're groping, they're searching, unable to actually get their hands wrapped around that very thing that they're looking for, while those who have experienced new life in Christ have discovered those answers, right? So the, the, the wisdom of this world is incomplete. Not only that, but it manipulates us by leveraging our own desires against us, right? It says, hey, you want happiness? Well, then earn more, buy more, experience and do more. You want to stop feeling lonely? Swipe right and left until somebody comes along and saves you from that feeling of loneliness. Life's too hard? Take another drink. Smoke another joint. Pop another pill. Pop, plop yourself down in front of the television set for hours on end until your mind's no longer able to think about the difficulties of this life. And the wisdom of this world can be deceitful. Right? It's deceitful. Whether, whether that deceit is a form of self-deceit, right? where we've, in essence, lied to ourselves and convinced ourselves of something that we want to be convinced of, or if those lies are coming from without. So what is the effect of the cross that Paul is trying to safeguard here? Right? Remember, the cross has a point, and we want to avoid the danger of nullifying the effect of the cross. Well, uh, let me put it this way. The cross finds its point in what it offers and in what it demands, right? You say, well, why did Jesus die on the cross? What is the point of all that? What is the point to me? Well, there is a point, and it finds itself in what the cross offers and what it demands. Now, what it offers is generally pretty clear to us. Um, for one, the cross offers forgiveness for our sin. Many of us are 
aware of that, right? The cross offers forgiveness for our sin, real forgiveness, right? This for, the, the kind of forgiveness where God forgives us despite what we have done. Secondly, the cross offers us peace with God. Full, splendid reconciliation without the need to continue trying to earn God's favor, right? The cross gives us peace with God. And finally, the cross offers a point to our suffering, right? Our suffering, which will eventually be overcome by eternal glory. Here's the reality. Everybody's going to suffer, right? It's just that for some, there's a point to the suffering, and for others, there is not. The cross offers a point to our suffering, and that is the future glory that will one day replace it. So that's what the cross offers, but the cross also comes with demands, right? The point of the cross is not only found in what it offers, but also in what it demands. Well, what does it demand? Well, for one thing, it demands contrition. The cross demands contrition. The cross did not invite applause, (laughs) right? The message of the cross did not incite crowds to clap their hands in celebration for and joy over what it represented. Imagine if someone were able to make the most clever use of words and express the most incredible sentiments, so much so that it left a crowd in awe, right? Like just mesmerized, like they had heard the voices of a thousand angels, where the only fitting response to that was a frenzied applause. It would actually be, I think, an unspeakable horror to think that somebody could use the occasion of one who was crucified on a cross to elevate his or her own platform or to accrue more of his or her own honor and accolades, right? This isn't the method of the cross. The cross demands contrition. It demands that we, when we encounter the cross, that we come before God in humility and contriteness. The response that we ought to have when we encounter the cross, I think, is summed up very well in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, where the psalmist says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Put me to the test and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Imagine if each of us, every day of our lives, engaged with God and sought the power of the cross in such a way where instead of being continually elevated by our own sense of pride and puffed upness, instead we responded with a contrite heart. So the cross demands contrition. And secondly, the cross demands allegiance. Again, there are those who have been enchanted into following Jesus because somebody was cleverly convincing or engaging or entertaining. 
but the cross is meant to arrest you. The cross isn't about the clever putting together of some words to convince you to do something. The cross is meant to arrest you and to arrest me, to stop us right in our tracks. It demands that we swear our allegiance. Like when a soldier is called to surrender. Can you imagine if two warring factions were battling one another and eventually it was clear that there was a winner and those on the losing end lifted up their arms and surrendered? Can you imagine if those on the losing side insisted that as a condition of their surrender, they get to continue to carry their assault rifle? Right? That would never happen. What is the requirement of surrender? The requirement is always that you lay down your arms. But I'm afraid that there are those who would come to Christ and would continue to hold up arms instead of wholly and completely surrendering themselves. The condition of surrender is we must lay down our arms. See, the, the cross demands our allegiance. The cross isn't interested in some kind of like superficial membership. Like I get it. There are, there are those who are, they're, they're, they're talented enough. They've figured out enough things that they can amass a big crowd and generate a lot of excitement and hubbub, right? To the point where we see these mega churches all across the country and the world forming. Literally tens of thousands assembling together as if that's what the church is supposed to look like. Again, most likely because they're far more attuned to the personality that is on the stage rather than understanding themselves as one participant in the body of Christ surrendered to the cross. Right, But there's something about the association, about kind of being in the mix with a whole bunch of other people. But the cross is not interested in superficial membership. It's not like when somebody who pays for a gym membership, when you pay for a gym membership, you get some stuff out of it, do you not? You get a membership card, right? You keep in your wallet or hang around your neck, right? So you get that. That, that card, it grants you access to the facility, it requires that you pay your dues, but that gym membership never, ever, ever guarantees any actual health benefits or physical improvement. You have to do something in addition to associating yourself with that. And the cross is the same way. The cross demands our allegiance signified by a change of heart, a change of attitude, and a change of direction. It is unmistakably clear that the gospel has been, is being reframed in such a way where there's little requirement for a change of heart, for a change of attitude, or a change of direction. 
the very fact that Christianity has divided, I think, can largely be traced back to the fact that we have departed from the cross. And so the cross evokes one of two responses. And here's the last couple of verses that we're going to look at this morning. The cross evokes one of two responses. Listen to what Paul says. He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. The first response is that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Think of what the cross stood for before we had our, um, our beloved hymns, you know, those hymns which oftentimes are circulating through my, our, through my mind anyway. I will cherish the old rugged cross, right? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Beautiful songs that describe a cherishing of the cross. But before we ever use the cross for decorating our sanctuaries or embedding them in stained glass windows or making crosses of gold and silver and other things, the cross was actually a symbol of shame and rejection. It was a cruel and unusual death saved for the worst of the worst. In Jesus' day, the cross was the ultimate cancel. And no one would have declared allegiance to someone who was clearly bad enough to crucify him on the cross. It would have been madness to do so. And that's why Paul says that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The cross, which has been popularized to some degree in our more Christianized and religious world, where at least there was a period of time where it was popular to be a Christian. I understand it is less so today. But at one time, it was a shame to pledge your allegiance to one who was crucified on a cross. It was unthinkable, utterly foolish. The cross challenges the values of those who despise it. The cross is foolish because it challenges the values of those who despise it. What are those values? Well, those values are things like self-gratification and self-reliance and self-determination, right? These are the values of those who despise the foolishness of the cross. You want to be happy? Well, the world has definitions for those who would be happy, right? The happy are the rich, the happier the superstars, the happier the carefree, the happier those that are feasting around tables, the happier those who are powerful. Right? So the cross evokes the response of foolishness for those who are perishing. But on the other hand, the other response is that it is the power of God to those who are being saved. The cross has its values that stand in contradiction to the values of this world's wisdom. The values of the cross, instead of self-gratification, it is that we die to ourselves. Instead of being self-reliant, it is that we need to admit our helplessness. In contrast to self-determination, we surrender 
our will. And in that true happiness, or in the words of Jesus, blessedness are redefined, right? Jesus said, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. It turns everything upside down. So as we close this morning, I want to ask you two questions. Number one, where is contrition needed in my life? What you've heard about today is the the impact the cross wants to have and bear on our lives. And the question you and I, each of us needs to wrestle with this morning is, where is contrition needed? Where do I need to lay down my will and surrender to God's will? Where do I need to lay down my pride and humble myself before God? Let me tell you what God will do. This is a promise given to us through Scripture. The Bible tells us that if we confess our sin, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what am I going to do? Am I just going to continue to be puffed up with pride? Or will I begin walking humbly with God? Second thing I want for each of us to consider this morning is, where is my allegiance? Where's my allegiance? Is my allegiance right now, is it aligned with something that isn't the cross? Am I, and and this may speak to more of us, am I actually trying to do both? Right? Like that is to to have a kind of allegiance toward Christ and the cross, but also um, maintain my allegiances toward some other things. Where's my allegiance?